Hello, <laughs> and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast in which we watch a romantic movie and tell you why whoever was selected as the choice out of a love triangle was actually the wrong romantic option. And today we have to talk very quickly because Samantha has to leave in an hour and 15 minutes, but Sadie and I are dying to talk about the 1987 classic film, The Lost Boys. I'm Jennifer. I am Samantha. And I am your beloved, wonderful, lovely Sadie. <laughs> Little laddie Sadie. All right, let's go, Sadie. Let's tell the people if they yes. have not seen it, what this movie is about. We can keep the summary tight. We can keep it going. And this is, I feel like this is a movie that not a whole lot of people seen. It's one of those horror movies that has not stayed as prolific as like Halloween, Friday the 13th, etc. Um, Fright Night. But Lost Boys is pinnacle vampire 80s Superior horror, to all of them. Camp, cult classic. Anyway, um... The basic overview is Michael and Sam, two brothers, um, move with their single mom to a place called Santa Carla. Is that again? Is that the name of the town? Yes, it's Santa Carla, yeah. and it is the place with like a really high murder rate. It's a seaside town, kind of a boardwalk situation, a Jersey Jersey Beach type of thing, um, and. Except California. They, yes, except in California. Lots of surfers. It's a point break. <laughs> point break parallels <laughs> abound. And um, the mom is recently divorced, uh, played by Diane Wiest. Is that correct? And then Sam, the younger brother, is I have played no idea by how to pronounce Corey that. But and then I am blanking on yes. who Michael plays. Oh, is Sadie, are you still there? What did you say? Oh, you sorry. You, you blanked you out like on me for a second. You like grayed out for me. Oh, same. But you're back now. And, uh, oh, the um, the older brother who is incredibly hot in this movie, but who you may not want to remember his name later because his celebrity gossip turn, like many of the actors in this movie, got really not fun to pay attention to, is Jason Patrick with just a C and not a K at the end of Patrick. Yes. Um, and so they move in with their kind of kooky taxidermy grandfather, and basically, Michael gets involved with a pack of gay-looking vampires led by Kiefer Sutherland, <laughs> a.k.a. David, in yes. a blonde, bleach-blonde mullet situation. And he also falls in love with, uh, oh my god, her name is Star. Star. And she is kind of a... Uh, she looks a lot like Esmeralda from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like she just yeah. has that whole vibe, like down to her <laughs> wardrobe even. And so Michael is at like a late night party down at the boardwalk and he ends up getting involved with Star and David and his pack of goonies. Um and David and his pack of goonies, they're 100% vampires. And they are contributing to the massive amount of dead bodies that pile <laughs> Santa Carla every year. Um, and so Michael goes back to their lair. He does not know that they are vampires. He just thinks that they're like cool kids. And so he goes back to their lair after a very intense game of chicken on a beach on their motorcycles and they have him Joey King could of, never oh please don't speak of <laughs> the kissing booth in this moment Jen this is a sacred space I apologize now. truly that was that was wrong of me I regret it I'm sorry Sadie carry on <laughs> <laughs> and he drinks wine quote unquote uh it's blood spoiler and begins the, the the beginning stages of turning into a vampire. He has not yet killed anyone, so it is not complete. But or yeah, I think that he has to kill someone for it to be complete. But yeah. anyway, he's like a half vampire. He, this the, these vampire universes they don't glitter in this movie. They can't go out in the sunlight. Yes. But you have to kill somebody to like make it a fish. And they do have to wear leather and they have to look queer. Those are the yes. other two prerequisites. Yes, they do. <laughs> um, and while this is happening, 
there's two other plot points. Number one, Sam, the younger brother, falls in with these two. Are they are they canonically brothers? I believe they are supposed to canonically be brothers, and they are the okay. children of that like hippie couple who's always passed out of sleep in the comic shop. I okay, think okay. least chosen family. They're blood brothers, yeah. pun intended. Yep. <laughs> I. Well, I was going to suggest a thruple for them, but I'm no longer going to do that. He's definitely going to romantically be involved with one of them at some point, but that's beside the Oh, for sure. Anyway, (laughs) they help run the comic book store on the boardwalk at Santa Carla, and they are fully convinced that there are vampires running amok in their little uh, seaside town. And they get Sam really invested in this as well. So he is in league with two teenage uh, wannabe vampire hunters. And third and final plot point, the mom, Diane Wiest, she gets involved with the video store owner, also on the boardwalk, and his name is Max, an older gentleman dresses in like sweater vests, cardigans, etc. And he has this really quite beautiful white German shepherd dog named Thorn. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but Sam and Michael, they own a dog named Nanook, which is like a husky type dog. This is important. Yeah, it's, it's like the just biggest husky in the world. Dogs. That is like a half wolf oh. dog. Because yeah, Huskies are actually deceptively like you would think that they're really big, but they're not often that huge. Yeah, they're like, I feel like they're smaller than German Shepherds most of they're the time. They're like, my dog Doc used to have a best friend who was a Husky named Shadow at the dog park in Johnson City. And they liked to like run around and wrestle all the time and stuff. But Doc was like 95 pounds and Shadow was like 45 pounds. And that really surprised me. Oh, Anyway. Nanook is a large dog who is sort of the counterpart to Thorn, who is also a large dog. Yes. Please, please feel free to take over whenever you want, Jen. I'll I'll tap out for a second and let you do the middle half. Oh, okay. So I'm jumping in right now. Okay, so Max, uh, Max's interest is the the mild-mannered uh, video rental store owner. His interest is piqued by the mother. I think her name is Lucy in the movie. I'm not sure how to pronounce the actor's last name either, even though she is like an Academy Award winner and very beautiful. So I'm just going to avoid it for right now and call her Lucy. So anyway, he start, He like asks, he gives the mom a job and then asks her out on a date, which is like our first hint that things might not be, uh, his, his ethics might be a little misplaced. But Sam and the Frog Brothers are convinced that Max is the head vampire in town. And that that's uh, apparently like you have to wipe out the head vampire to kill all the other vampires or whatever. So they make like nests, like, uh, I don't know. Like if you're a vampire exterminator, you definitely want to wipe out the queen or whatever. So they're trying to take out the head vampire. So um, Max comes over to have a date with Lucy which Sam and the Frog Brothers ruin by trying to perform a bunch of tests on Max to see if, you know, he's a vampire, but he passes them all. But foolishly, Michael fell for the ruse to invite Max into the house. So we're still kind of up in the air about that at this point. Meanwhile, let's see, Michael is still turning into a vampire. He's in this half vampire state. Sam figures it out and is freaked out as fuck about this. That's why he's joined forces with the Frog Brothers in the first place to like become a vampire hunter. And Michael uh, goes off to get answers from Star. And then they have like a sex scene in the like sunken hotel that is the vampire dudes hang out. And like, which that's weird in hindsight. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Were the others like just hanging in there like asleep or dead like bats because it was daytime when Michael and Star were like doing it in the next room? That's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> Also, where was Laddie then? There's a little boy, a half vampire too, named Laddie. Anyway, yeah, so Laddie was definitely <laughs> in the same main part of the cave while like, Michael and Star were having sex. Oh no, um, <laughs> Laddie! You need like proper caretakers. That was not not great. Anyway, so 
The Frog Brothers think that Sam should just kill his brother. Sam's not so big on that idea. He learns about that they're like half vampires. But to to save the half vampires from their fate as vampires and um, turn them back into humans, you have to kill the head vampire. Oh, also, meanwhile, during this time, Michael finds out that the, you know, the um, titular lost boys are vampires because they've been putting him through this weird, like, uh, you know, sexy, queer... 80s teen hazing stuff and they take him out on a beach and kill a big party of people and try to get him to join them and he won't even though they look incredible while they're doing it and so then obviously he gets invested too in trying to save star and laddie so so it is michael star laddie sam and the frog brothers versus the forces of evil in this town um mom is still completely oblivious and grandpa is you know a wacky old man and they don't really talk to him about it and so the frog brothers and sam go in to try to with michael to try to rescue star and laddie they are growing very weak because they haven't killed anybody uh to become full vampires yet and whatever they have to be rescued and when they go in there the frog brothers kill the alex winter vampire who is my personal favorite style of all the vampires his name is marco by the way according to imdb yes (laughs) and then they have they've got to get out of there real fast and uh oh i I left out all the stuff about the dogs after we made a big important thing about thorn and nanook whatever we're blasting (laughs) through the summer we'll talk about that later anyway they know they've only got a couple hours before the vampires are going to come try to attack them that night so they set up all these booby traps and stuff the vampires do come and attack them and Let's see. Marco is already dead. Paul is the blonde vampire. He breaks in on them and like thinks he's going to get them for a minute. But then they knock him into a bathtub filled with holy water and garlic, which dissolves him. Uh, Dwayne. Into a delicious seasoned (laughs) soup of blood, guts, and and pus. (laughs) I bet Grandpa ate some of it after. Again, we'll get into that. Um, Dwayne, the, in my opinion, sexiest of the little vampire crew, the dark-haired one, Sam shoots him through the heart with an arrow that also impales him into a stereo system, which electrocutes him to death very dramatically. And death but then by David, stereo. <laughs> death by stereo. <laughs> When David comes in to attack Kiefer Sutherland, our main uh, sort of rivalry slash erotic tension relationship uh, between David and Michael, Michael has to go into vampire mode too to battle him. And then they have this whole big fight scene that culminates in Michael impaling David onto like a framed thing of horns what kind deer horns i'm not sure what kind of horns those are but david gets impaled on the horns and the sex scene theme plays and he thrashes around making very erotic looking faces and then like they both make extreme like sexual come down faces at each other while the theme song of the movie keeps playing and then he's dead and everybody's saved but Michael does not turn back into a normal human. He's still got his vampire face. And Sam comes running in to find him. And he's all like that Michael to star and Laddie is all like, don't let them see me. Like they haven't been rescued yet. So David wasn't the head vampire. Bum, bum, bum. The head vampire, of course, turns out to be Max, the mild-mannered video rental man. And his aim was to turn Michael and Sam into vampires so that their mom could also not resist becoming a vampire so that he would have a mother for his lost boys. And... So he's like going to kill Sam. And so the mom is about to give in because to save her son. And then grandpa crashes through the house with the car and smashes into Max, the head vampire and kills him and saves the day for everyone. And then they're all standing there like with soot all over their faces. Like everything's a giant wreck. The house is destroyed. Grandpa goes into the kitchen and opens the fridge and it kind of does this fake out on you where you're like, everybody's looking at him with a lot of worry. And you think that 
is grandpa going to be a vampire for a second? But then he takes a big swig of his bottle from the fridge that does kind of look like the bottle of blood that Michael drank out of, to be fair, and says, I'm not sure if I've got the exact quote. I don't have it in front of me, but something like, if there's one thing I never could stomach about living in Santa Carla, it's all the damn vampires. And then boom, grandpa cut to the credits. Is, <laughs> grandpa is way too busy fucking and sucking, and he does not <laughs> want to be sucking blood. <laughs> in, it's like in it's a minor like pest control problem for grandpa. Like yeah. grandpa, what is your life? <sighs> Okay, shall we? Okay, we shall. Actually, discussing the movie. Well, first of all, Samantha, I would like to know your thoughts on this movie because obviously, if it isn't, if it hasn't come across in in the way that we're speaking, Jen and I are fans. Sadie, I'd like to answer you by reading an excerpt from director Joel Schumacher's Wikipedia page. <clears throat> me, 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 me. Schumacher (laughs) described himself as, quote, extremely promiscuous, saying in a 2019 interview that he became sexually active at age 11 and estimating that he had sex with between 10,000 and 20,000 men over the course of his life. (laughs) Damn, Joel. Uh, This is the most homoerotic film ever made. By one of the most homoerotic directors ever made, the man who famously gave Batman nipples. And it's fantastic. It is a camp classic. And uh, Star or whoever faces might as well not even be there because it is all about the guy who looks like a young John Travolta and the blonde vampire. I've refused to learn any of the names in this movie, but I love it a lot. Yeah, Star is definitely there as like compulsory heterosexuality. But the costume designer, like like Sadie said, Star weirdly like looks like Asmerelda. Like her her style does not fit in with any of the vampires or with this movie at all. So you know, like they let us know that she was forced upon us here. Like she is not the point. Also, we have not yet mentioned the absolutely iconic opening scene where, well, it's not like the very opening, but near the very beginning of the movie where Michael and Sam are discovering the boardwalk. And this is where Michael first spots star and becomes irresistibly attracted to her is where the sexy sax man oiled torso, Tim Capello is like hardcore saxing and pelvic thrusting at us performing a cover of, I still believe. I think that's probably the image in most people's head. Like when you think of this movie, you know, what gets in my head when I think about this movie Thou shalt not kill. (laughs) Thou shalt not die. It's such a good song. This soundtrack, by the way. Also, Joel Schumacher deserves all the credit for this. So I was looking it up after. uh, For some reason, I thought because they've made a couple like Lost Boys comics and like some sequels that I never watched. I thought maybe this was adapted from a previously existing property, but no, it was a screenplay, but it was originally written to be more like a Goonies type of thing for younger kids. And they wanted the vampires to be like Sam and the Frog Brothers age and the Sam and the Frog Brothers to be young. And Joel Schumacher then got tapped to direct and he was like, no, 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 no. Like you fail to understand the point of vampires. Yeah. (laughs) And he gave us this gift. (laughs) I love, I love the way that we refer to it as a soundtrack when in fact it is just like one 10 minute long song. They just splice. (laughs) Okay. In different points. And this is as someone who has the song in her Spotify library and does listen to it often. (laughs) I really, I really be sitting here on my doing like a mark, my marketing job while listening to (laughs) uh, don't cry little sister. Yeah, I'm not walking the dogs to it. I'm with you, Sadie. But there's also the cover of I Still Believe by sexy sax man Tim Capello. And oh, and then the surf Nazis on the beach are listening to Aerosmith um, when the Lost Boys show up to kill him. 
So I there are have three to songs in the movie. <laughs> that Sax Man was a condition of Joel Schumacher uh, onboarding the project. One thousand like, percent. I'm not doing it unless you give me a homoerotic sax solo. Like, talk about setting the tone. It literally this movie fucks. This movie rips. <laughs> this this movie, movie is so good. This movie fucks so hard. I've been waiting to do this movie for this podcast because the other guy could not be more crystal clear. Like, I'm sure that we will touch in on it a little bit deeper um, in a second. But the sexual tension between Michael and David is so palpable. Like, I, I know that... Neither of you have read the series, but for our listeners who have, um, it, this is about The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stuvater. It's a uh, four-book series, um, and I won't get into specifics, but there is one character named Ronan who has a similar homoerotic relationship with this very bad person named Kavinsky who is very dangerous and like drives really fancy sports, not like sports cars, but like muscle cars and like drag races and is very, and like does cocaine and is just like very dangerous. But like there's this level of like intense attraction, but also they hate each other and Like, I think that this kind of relationship is definitely present with Michael and David, where Michael is very attracted to David, but David is objectively evil, like he murders people. And so there's this like desire that is rooted in perversion, maybe not the right word, but this desire rooted in blood and in danger that is so fascinating to me. I'm obsessed with it. Please, someone stop me from talking more. Take it away. Expand on what I've said. You are 100% correct on all of this. And um, yeah, we talk a lot of being a podcast co-hosted by three bisexual women. I know that we have touched in the past on young feminine bisexual experiences and feelings. And this movie sort of showed me that from a masculine perspective a little bit more. That combination of competition and lust between Michael and David is just electric. Like you're waiting for them to kiss the whole time and then they never do. And then they have a death sex scene. And wow, it just, it's mind blowing. So I actually, I would have been, God, not quite two years old when this movie came out. So I didn't see it until I was in, my mom uh, discovered it. Also, she was very busy taking care of two-year-old me and getting ready to give birth to my brother when it originally came out. But when I was in my teens, mom discovered this movie and became obsessed with it. It is like her favorite of favorite movies. So I probably saw it for the first time and I was closer to Michael's age and it spoke to me on that level. Like the vampire sexual, like the sublimated sexual attraction stuff came straight through. So Sadie, I want to ask you about how the Lost Boys was introduced to tiny baby Sadie. Like, were you just like a little four-year-old, like with your lollipop? Were you laddie's age when you first saw this movie? Yes. I, my parents (laughs) love this movie. They have it. I think they have like three copies on VHS. Um, (laughs) And so I watched this movie a lot when I was little and it really has like grown up with me. I started out once I was, I reached the age where like crushing was a thing that I could do. Um, I was really into Sam, Sam's character or um, Corey Haim's character um, because he was closest to my age. And then as I got older, um, I'd say around like high school-ish, early high school, late middle school, um, I was like, oh yeah, Marco and Star are it for me. (laughs) I was so, Marco was like 
so hot to me. I don't, it was like the weird curly mullet thing, the little like tiny jacket. I was like, he gets the best, uh, like that patch jacket too. Uh, He's got the, the leopard print. He gets the most color out of them all. Like, Oh, Marco. Yes. Yes. Literally like the most non-binary presenting person (laughs) I've seen in in any movie made prior to like 2010. Um, And it still took me like another three years to realize that I was queer. Baffling. (laughs) Um, And then upon a more recent rewatch within the past like year or two, I've definitely recognize that Michael is also hot. But like, I mean, for the longest time, I was like, I don't give a shit about Michael. It is it is Sam. And then I was like, no, actually, it is Marco and Star. And then now I'm like, it is now Marco, Star, and Michael and David. <laughs> but, you know, Samantha, what I about understand you? That, that David is Michael's man. I'll just say that. He has such uh, an intense gaze. What is the name of the blonde vampire? The there head vampire. I mean, well, not the head vampire. The uh, the Kiefer blind. Sutherland. The mullet. Wait, that's Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. It Holy is shit! Wow. <laughs> He's great in this. Oh my god. <laughs> it's no wonder he went on to become an actor. I guess you know. Um. <laughs> Was this your first viewing? Of this movie? Uh, no, I've seen it before, but recently this was a pandemic view for me, um, along with a bunch of other 1980s horror films. And God, it's great. I mean, just like, I I can talk about the sexual stuff later, but just from a craft perspective, how nice is it to see like practical effects, like a a real set that gets torn down? Um, you know, like it's just so refreshing. I love that last fight in the mansion, especially this shot where they like leap at each other from opposite corners of that big living area. Did either of you notice that one? And it's like clearly done with like actual stunt people and wires. And it's the sort of thing that today, if you watch some YouTube video for like a, a Marvel director breaks down the big fight scene or something, they'd be like, well, none of this was real. (laughs) Uh, We filmed the actors' faces doing faces like they were jumping at each other, and then we just typed in computer, uh, have them leap at each other, and it spat out this scene. But, like, so I just, like, love how tangible everything feels from the location shoots to the vampire makeup. Um, And... Yeah, obviously Kiefer Sutherland is is hot and this movie very much does remind me of like like pre-transition experiences with like guy friends where it was like why don't we just sleep over at each other's houses every night and uh eventually one of our parents being like maybe you shouldn't do that and kind of experiencing that like uh that like danger of approaching a limit you didn't know was even there right which seems to be kind of what leads young john travolta looking type person whose name i still refuse to know into trouble and okay you can know the characters names i would warn anybody who loves this movie and i love this movie that you're going to get really depressed really fast if you start looking at any of the actors who were in it and how their lives have turned out since. And I think that part of the funniest thing to me is that the extreme sexual tension between Michael and David, the characters who Samantha is speaking about, they still don't realize it and tried to deny it like up till I was watching a YouTube video from a Lost Boys um, panel at a convention in 2019 and they are both there you know older middle age trying their damnedest to present this very straight man appearance and say that they were just so good at being enemies in the role because they they became best friends in real life also in real life this is like a not so depressing celebrity gossip thing but back in like the late 80s early 90s 
Julia Roberts was engaged to Kiefer Sutherland, right? And he and Jason Patrick were best friends in real life after making this movie. And like two days before Julia Roberts was supposed to marry Kiefer Sutherland, she left him, she called off the wedding and ran off to Europe with Jason Patrick. She left David and went off with Michael. Apparently they have since like water under the bridge this since Julia Roberts has, but real life parallels, like the star thing was there. I think the energy of them between each other is there so strongly, but they are both so committed to their straightness that they cannot even conceive of that, (laughs) that level between them without a woman there to act as the channel between them. Did Joel Schumacher make a movie that wasn't about being gay? I mean, like, it's hilarious I to me that they would still try to deny it. not. <laughs> it reminds me, and I can recommend this as viewing, even if neither of you want to, to delve into Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is clearly a gay allegory. And it starred a young actor who was not out at the closet, out of the closet at the time. Um, and the movie essentially kind of like outed him because of how he was portrayed. He was kind of the first like final boy in a slasher movie rather than a final girl and audiences reacted poorly because he screamed in a very effete way. And it just kind of essentially like, uh, showed viewers like this is a gay actor before he had even publicly said that. And, um, he tried to confront the screenwriter about it, uh, like years and years and years later. And this is the subject of a documentary. I'll look up the title later and send it to you both. But, um, he was essentially like, you knew what you were doing, but I was like 17 years old and you were essentially like kind of, having a joke at my expense with this screenplay and for ages the screenwriter denied it and never really fully accepted it but a very moving journey in the end the movie's been kind of like reclaimed as a campy queer classic and the guy now tours like queer horror film festivals with it so it's had a happy ending but it was a real rough road for that guy and it's It's just funny seeing people try to deny the queerness that just abounds in 80s horror, especially. But this one, too, of course, this is like 1987. Like, what are we still like, uh, you know, the the like HIV AIDS like crisis going on in the 80s? Like, you know, only like relatively recently do we have like decent medications beyond just prevention. And this like... David like taunting Michael and luring him to the edge and daring him to be his real self. Mm. But if he wants to do it, he's going to have to be infected, quote air quotes, and he's going to have to kill other people. And like, you know, there's just, I, I was saying to Sadie right before Samantha got here and we started recording that I was kind of, I was like super galaxy braining out about all the levels of this movie when I rewatched Night Before Last. And like, and then I looked it up and I'm like, where are the academic theses about the Lost Boys? Like, there's so many, I mean, all of them queer, obviously, but there are so many angles where you can approach this movie and write about it as like broader societal commentary. I think we even mentioned the HIV AIDS crisis tie-in on a previous episode somewhere, but like I it's think so it might have been Point Break. Yes, right? another homoerotic classic, but yeah. it's it, it's so obvious. I mean, you know, two that also okay. I asked this question while I was watching the other night on Twitter because I was genuinely curious that are like for West Coast people, are surf Nazis a real thing that existed or does exist? Or was this something that happened in West Coast based movies? Because that's where I learned about it. Somebody wrote me back and was like, yeah, it's called Huntington Beach. And I looked it up and I was like, oh, wow, Huntington Beach is like a very, very majority white area populated by very, very rich people that has apparently one of the highest crime rates in the world, um, much like Santa Carla in this movie. 
And I kind of, that we had surf Nazis as antagonists in both Point Break and in this movie. And that's what I was kind of like, damn, like uh, Max, who turns out to be the head vampire is talking about how his boys, his lost boys, vampire boys need discipline. But shit, they're out there like killing white supremacists. Is that so bad? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with the queer reading of the movie is like, you know, ultimately, this is a movie that kills all the vampires and punishes them all. And, um, you know, so like, you enjoy the subtext. And yet, uh, on a surface level, the movie itself is kind of upholding the normative. um, Everybody's everybody's good. Even the even the child comes back from vampiredom. What? How? You know? How more heteronormative could it get than like? Look, we've we've preserved the nuclear family structure with what's his face star and the mattress bursting baby. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it's interesting. I feel like recently horror has made more room, uh, especially as like queer people. Uh, get more open about media representation of like embracing the monster or, um, you know, kind of yeah, like, right. Like yeah. the end of the witch where she flies off into the, she chooses to live deliciously. Yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> ditto the end of midsummer where, you know, she's smiling while her oh, boyfriend yeah. burns to death. That's the same director too, right. For both of those. Mm-hmm. No, it was, uh, the lighthouse guy did the oh, witch. Oh, the witch. Okay. Ari okay, Aster did um, Hereditary. That's it. The one with Tony Collette, yeah. who we just talked about in. Oh, wouldn't wouldn't Hereditary <laughs> be a fun movie to talk about on this podcast? Um, absolutely not. I am vetoing immediately. But I will say that Sadie has a no Ari Aster policy. Remember, Samantha, that still stands. I have a no Sadie policy. You do oh. not. <laughs> you were what would you, you do were down right in the mushroom well. Left this room, you'd be lost without me, without my audio. <laughs> I would I, vamp. I I hope your rice is actually maggots. <laughs> wow! No. Um, no. <laughs> what I was saying, excuse me, is. What I love about these types of movies, like The Lost Boys, that I feel like, okay, 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 okay. I have, okay, I'm I'm reframing what I want to say and I'm articulating it. So I love that people are exploring alternative storytelling in horror. And I think that horror as a genre is really evolving and changing and people are getting really like experimental highbrow with it. Um, And I could say that a lot of the more like, quote unquote, successful rom coms in recent years are doing the same, like, um, happy anniversary, insert other famous rom coms of recent years here. Um, But what I love about the Lost Boys is that it's still it's campy, but it still has that premise of like bad guys lose and good people win. And as you mentioned, of course, there's a lot of subtext in that. But I enjoy that. Like, I think that that comfort when I'm watching horror is important to me. Like the knowledge that you'll still come out of it hopeful rather than just deeply sad. I I enjoy horror movies to a certain extent, but I like, I like it to feel like a rom-com, you know? So like, for example, I mean, spoilers, whatever. I did not like Hereditary. I did not like Midsummer. I did not like, um, oh gosh, is this a spoiler? Well, if you were planning on watching anything horror, maybe skip ahead like 30 seconds, but I did not totally enjoy Midnight Mass. <laughs> um <gasps> Oh, can we talk about that? I I love Mike Flanagan, but Midnight Mass was more like a midnight miss for me. <laughs> yes, we can absolutely. That definitely, we can do a quick five minute uh, 
sojourn uh, about midnight. Yeah, quick, Samantha. Because we got to get our Lost Boys time in. Well, okay, I didn't like... It's also a vampire thing. Spoilers. We But we already flagged spoilers. Except they don't fucking call it vampire the whole time. Yeah, the for way. some reason, nobody in this world knows that it's Damn. a vampire. Wait, um, and it's yeah. about, like, Catholic stuff and vampires? Yeah, they kind of, yes. like, try to make um, vampires a part of, like, Old Testament mythology, so kind of. So, like, super, like, the La Sombra from the White Wolf Vampires the Masquerade role-playing game circa 2000. Yeah. Got it. I, I mean, like, my issue with it is Mike Flanagan has always been very monologue-heavy, and I think it was well-balanced oh. in The Haunting of Hill House, like, I think that is genuinely gripping and emotional. The bent neck lady is maybe my f- one of my favorite pieces of television of the 21st century, along with, you know, I think the black and white episode from Twin Peaks, The Return. Um, but the monologuing just, oof, it goes overboard on this one. It, it strains oh. credulity way too far. What did you think, Sadie? Yes. It, I love when people like talk in horror, when it makes sense. Like when there's good dialogue between the characters rather than just like jump scare after jump scare. But this, it did not feel like dialogue. It just felt like characters talking at a wall for like 10 minutes straight. Like um, I'm thinking specifically of there's a scene between Riley and Aaron in I think episode four or episode three where they're at her house and they're talking about death and mortality and everything and that scene goes on for like at like 20 minutes and I was like holy shit can I please see the vampire again please <laughs> can I please I it felt very not how people interact with one another. And so considering that this movie, and I would argue most vampire movies really have to be grounded by like the innate humanity of people who are not vampires or like exploring the humanity within vampires. The fact that none of the characters acted like how you expect any normal human to act completely sidesteps it. And that's not even getting into what I feel are kind of like misses in terms of what they were trying to say about like Christianity and also Islamophobia um, and just how it ended really didn't mesh up with anything of what I think they were trying to say. Okay, jumping off of both of what both of you have just said, back into the Lost Boys, I read a Joel Schumacher quote uh, just yesterday talking about Kiefer Sutherland in the Lost Boys. And I think that that's a really interesting counterpoint to the, where you guys are saying that the dialogue, the monologuing over much is a problem with Midnight Mass. And I think that Joel Schumacher was absolutely right to give Keith Sutherland his his props here because he said he has some of the least amount of dialogue in the entire movie, but his presence sells the whole thing. And that is so true and so powerful about that because David doesn't say very much. He makes that taunt about the rice being worms. Yeah. He says a few things, but mostly it's just his gaze that, you know, is what sells it. Like what the fuck else is yeah. he to say? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, like I just he, oh I remember yeah I mean like I, there's the old axiom like show don't tell and uh, Lost Boys does that very well and but I don't think it's a hard and fast rule I like when Mike Flanagan flouts it sometimes but Sadie that monologue about death and what they think happens after they die one of the more infuriating things was like when folks on Twitter were like sharing like graphics of those like written out like and they were just like oh my god like best screenplay give it all the awards now and it's like it's a really beautiful piece of writing. It's not necessarily great television writing, you know, like at a certain yeah. point, it just feels like so, like kind of trying to flex your chops and show what you can do, like to your own detriment. And yeah, I love that uh, Kiefer Sutherland says almost nothing and yet says everything. And, and he still feels like a real character. Like he 
especially I think in his death scene. I think that his death scene was really smart because he doesn't have the blood and guts and gore of the other vampires. It's very angelic almost when he dies. And it says a lot about like who he could have been. Maybe he was a different person before he was a vampire. How long was he a vampire? We don't know those things. We don't know how much being a vampire corrupted him. And when he dies, it's almost like you remember that he was a person and and a very he young had person. A lot more before this. Like we don't know we didn't know him really. And like neither did Michael. And so Michael did kill him, you know, even though he didn't know David, he still ended him. And I think that that was a really beautifully shot scene. I don't know if I'm getting too soapy with it. Yes. No, it was, it was beautiful. It was like, it it was erotic and violent, but tender there at the end. And Joel Schumacher, oh, just incredible. And this also leads me up to my second point that I wanted to make besides the, you know, not so much dialogue plus enormous amounts of presence, but that it, Samantha already brought it up. So I don't have to go there like bashing on Marvel movies earlier in this podcast, but that I think it serves this so well. And I think that vampire stories play so well on a very intimate, small, relatively small stakes level. You know, I mean, this is very high stakes for this family that's going through this and is going to get turned into vampires or killed otherwise. But it's not some the whole world is about to be destroyed thing, you know, because I I feel like vampire narratives work so well on that level because they're very it's a vampire narratives like on the whole. I feel like work really well when they're human narratives about Mm -hmm how it affects your humanity or are you renouncing your humanity or what does it? So it was because watching this movie again for the upteenth time, it kind of occurs to me that David is not even that much of a badass. He's just a charismatic, like how long is he? He was turned into a vampire in the eighties. Nobody was wearing that mullet who was turned into a vampire in the 1700s, you know? And I kind of, I wonder so much about, I I was getting really, you know, like off into fanfic territory wondering like, so why did Max turn David into a vampire? And then these other kids into, you know, or did David turn these other people into vampires, like trying to get his, own little found family around him himself, you know, like that the intimacy of it all works very well. And Mm -hmm. like Sadie was just saying that without a lot of dialogue, David feels like so much of a character. I feel like everybody in this movie pretty much. Um, That's I guess why I was a little bit surprised, uh, which I don't know why this surprised me at all, because comic adaptations to movies, I've seen a lot of really bad ones. And uh, I, but this, it was really good screenwriting because it hints you could do a spinoff story on this universe or on any of these characters. They all gave a sense that there was so much more going on with them. There was a lot you didn't know at any point about how they got to where they are, what they could grow to, where they're going. And that is just intoxicating to watch in, oh, especially a goofy, like physical effects, like practical effects, gore, 1980s horror movie with exploding blood and people with mullets and amazing leather jackets. Like that's just why this movie is so chef's kiss. It's, Oh, does anyone have another guy to propose besides uh, the man from 24? (laughs) I object to you phrasing it that way. (laughs) I will say, (laughs) um, I, I don't know. Well, first of all, I mean, do you guys agree that, Later on, when they're older, Sam is definitely getting with one of the one of the Frock brothers. I feel like it's inevitable. Oh, I don't know Sam, which one, but Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, right? We I mean, do need to talk about how good Corey Feldman's performance is in this. Yeah, like yeah. and Corey Haim. God, they're they're so good. You can see why Corey Feldman was like a breakout child actor because, like, wait a second, are we talking about Corey Haim there? Are we talking about Arizona Sam? Are we talking about the Frog Brother one? Uh, Corey uh, Feldman. Feldman, He wears the bandana, I think. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So we are talking about the Frog Brother. Okay. 
Yeah, he's just like, it's rare to see a child actor like commit to a part and like, you know, act. I feel like usually the trick with like directing child actors is just kind of like naturally channeling their like existing personality and ticks into like a part that is kind of wrapped around them. And you can see Corey Feldman just like really getting into the the role and like he's like full fucking rambo in there as edgar frog like the bandana the gruff voice it, but it's also like self-aware in a way you wouldn't expect from a child actor where he's like doing the gruff voice <laughs> but then he also you can tell has the kind of like meta knowledge of like i'm doing a gruff voice like he somehow does it in an affected way where you can see that the character is affecting it. And that kind of only makes the vulnerability of the character like uh, more visible by seeing that gap between like, this is a little boy. And then like, he's trying to act like Sylvester Stallone. That's what I was thinking so much too on this rewatch was that the frog brothers, they try to present themselves to Sam as the only person who semi buys it. Of course, is that they're, they're already, they identify themselves as vampire hunters, but those kids haven't found a fucking vampire hangout. When Corey Feldman's Edgar frog stakes, Marco, that is 1000% the first vampire he has killed in his vampire hunting career. But they know that the frog brothers know that vampires are real and they are dedicated to eradicating them. So they had chosen the lifestyle already. They're just actualizing it now. I feel like happens in this movie. So I know we're running low on time, but there's so many offshoots. Obviously we know that Samantha would happily kill a surf Nazi for the benefits of, you know, super strength and immortality. Oh yeah. Why would you give up living forever? All you have to do, wait, all you have to do is like drink people's blood and like murder people, right? Yeah. Okay. You don't have to go out in the daylight. (laughs) I would not want to live forever. Like I'm good with the (laughs) 80 odd years that I have ahead of me. I would not. I guess it's less that I would want to live forever and more that I want to experience what it's like to feel unburdened by time. You know, I could always Mm. stab myself in the heart with a stake if I got bored of being alive. Well, but it would be nice to let a century pass by like, like it was a week of vacation, you know? You think that, but that's before like list at at the beginning of Tale of the Body Thief where he tries to die by suicide by flying directly into the sun, but he got too powerful because of Akasha's blood. And so he like cannot die and has to trade off his body. Well, I, here's the thing, my prerequisites for being a vampire. And I was thinking about this because I was rewatching the, what we do in the shadows TV series is if I could drink like cows as an alternative, that would be great. I could, I could do that. Um, like non-human creatures, because I feel like it would just get kind of tiresome, like having to find a human all the time. So that's number one. Number two, you would have to get I so like extroverted. How people? Like, I would one hundred percent be like if I had to be shut away from my family the rest of my life. Like, I'd have to pretend to have died, and then like they can't know about me. Then I don't want it. But if I could just be like, "Hey, Dad, look at all this cool stuff I could do," and he would be like, "Sick." Then that would be great. And also, I feel of like course, your dad would say that too. Oh yeah. Well, I, this is like a very quick side note. But one time, my dad sat me down when I was little and was like, "I need you to know that if you experience anything supernatural, you can tell me. I will believe you." <laughs> Wait. Follow up question: Have you ever asked him? Because that makes it sound like he has had paranormal experiences <laughs> himself knows. and been doubted. He's ready. <laughs> He, he has, you know, I'm not gonna, I mean, you know, he, he was a wild individual in his past. He's seen some things. So I don't know what all he's seen, but he definitely believes in fairies 
and in like <laughs> supernatural beings. And he was basically, I truly, he was just like, I will believe you. I'm not like those stupid parents in like Disney Channel original series who don't believe their kids. I will listen to you. You just can't fuck with me. Like if you tell me you have to be for real. <laughs> and I was like, me as like a five-year-old, I was like, yes, dad. <laughs> <laughs> like that's an important talk to have with your children, I feel like. I think it's validating. And I think yeah. <laughs> that it made me the person that I am today to know that my dad would believe me. <laughs> um, unlike this bitch, like I was thinking about this and how the mom reacted to things. Like, I know that she's tired, whatever, but I I would I would hear them out. Like there's some weird shit going on in this town. I, I hear them out. She's kind of in the mom's defense. She is in a very weird place here. I don't think that the mom made good choices because at the beginning, so they, they make some like line about how, again, everybody having such rich material for backstories and input that you don't, you know, you just sort of see them and what they're doing in the moment in the movie. And that's, that adds to it a lot. But so she's divorced their dad, who apparently was well off and lived in Phoenix, but he's not supporting them anymore, or they all have to move to grandpa's weird trailer. Like, you know, it's very, and she says, like, she's kind of has this cops, this Pollyanna attitude about how she doesn't want to. You know, it an expensive legal battle won't do anybody any good. But bitch is begging for a job at a video rental store is what dire strait she's in. And she kind of, she's very like, uh, you know, therapist light to her kids. She wants to talk to them about their feelings and their problems and stuff. But it's so weird when Max says that the Lost Boys need discipline and that's why he wants to recruit her because this is the least mm -hmm. disciplinary figure of all time. Like, <laughs> she is like, yeah, she's just kind of like woo-woo and positivity vibes, you know? <laughs> And then her kids, though, when they do, they start to confide in her a little bit, but then they always pull it back and actively lie to her about it. And I'm very interested, yeah. but we might do a bonus interview with my mom about this, about why this is her favorite movie. But I feel like uh, she saw this at a time where she had so many teen boys sleeping in her basement every weekend of her life at that period that maybe she identified. She was a like, this is deeply <laughs> relatable to me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I won't speak for her, but that is my theory. <laughs> well, should we get to rating? I know that Samantha has to mm. dip out in a bit. Samantha's got to roll what? Mm, I've got to think of my rating scale. Somebody else go first. Oh, God. Well, I can't go first. I have to think of my rating scale. Samantha, Samantha you go first. The Lost Boys, five out of five forgotten luxury resorts on a Southern California coastline. Uh, truly a classic. Joel Schumacher's creative apex. Uh, great hair for Kiefer Sutherland. And just one of the great gay love stories in American cinema. You're so right. You're I, so right. <laughs> I will give Lost Boys five garlic necklaces out of five, or shall I say five heads of garlic on my garlic necklace out of five. This movie is the, the homoerotic film. There is no other that can quite compare to this. The layers of queerness to this movie, the crop tops, the mullets, the vampires, the boardwalk, the weird fading in and out montages, the late night motorcycle rides, the taxidermy. It's all there. It's all there. The Hawaiian shirts, the comic books. Oh, I'll, I'll calm myself. Anyway, it's fucking good. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's like a perfect October movie. And it's also a perfect year round movie. It's also a perfect summer movie because there's surfing involved. Um, it's just a uh, perfect movie. It, it's a perfect movie, it's period. Perfect. And obviously, my rating is also likewise a five of five. My rating scale is going to be four full-fledged, beautifully coiffed queer teen vampires plus one 
beautifully coiffed teen half vampire who is also queer but doesn't accept it about himself yet, dropping off of the bottom of a train track for a beautiful score of five and five stars. Also, Tim Capello, the sexy sax man, talk about the definition of himbo. He is amazing. I was fortunate to see him play live the week before the pandemic hit last year, and I will post my photos of said encounter on the Twitter to brag about it. And if you get to see Tim Cabello play, you really, really should go take advantage of it because it was amazing. And I felt like I was in the Lost Boys. Did he play that this song from? Oh, hell yeah, he did. Hell yeah, he did, Samantha. (laughs) Did he he play? Thou shalt not kill. Unfortunately, he did not because he doesn't. But okay, so we were at the hideaway, right? Where Samantha almost won the goth prom costume contest that time years ago. And uh, Tim Capello, I didn't believe it when I saw like a local share the poster. I was like, what? And then until I saw somebody coming on Facebook and the, the guy who booked him and was like, no, it's the real Tim Capello. And I told him like, man, you know that this is a venue for punk and metal bands. And Tim Capello said, I love punk and metal bands. And I was like, all right, we're there. We're there. Like I Damn. wore a chain necklace. to look. So, so we're sitting there. Waiting on the, because, you know, the shows start late as fuck, as happens at any punk venue. And Justin uh, was asleep. And so I was like sitting there trying to hold him up and look like he was not on hard, hard drugs so that we would get kicked out. And at around midnight, Tim Capello walks in, sax case in hand. And y'all, I made the like, oh, like my face and he saw me and he made a big smile back at me. And I was like, oh, Samantha. Samantha. (laughs) I was reading Samantha's name. Cut that. Cut that. Jen, you are one degree of separation away from Alex Winters and Keeper Seven. (laughs) I am. He goes back to the, and then when it was time for Tim Capello's part of the show to start, the lights went down. And so we get up and go get on the floor, you know? He didn't come out to the stage. He didn't. And then you hear this like, like, like quiet wailing of a sax from the back of the building. And then the man starts playing a saxophone solo, made his way up through the heaviest part of the whole crowd to the stage and just like saxed at you right in your face while making eye contact. And we were all so fucking hype by the time he got to the front. It was just like a transcendent experience. Oh my God. He did a whole solo show. He also like plays keyboard and saxophone at the same time sometimes. And like he he was oiled. He wore the chain necklace he does the whole thing. He had us all do the same little hand dance that Star does in the movie when he did I Still Believe. He was incredible. And then he stayed for like a million years to sign autographs and everything for people. So yeah, I don't know. Look up Tim Capello on Facebook. And if he's coming to your area, definitely go see it. Sounds like <laughs> I would have to wear earplugs at this event. Samantha, you should be wearing earplugs at like every event, including movies. I, I have been doing that for a long at time. Movies. I went to a concert two nights ago, a Wilco Samantha. concert. Wild you better have been wearing some here. earplugs. Earplugs for sure. And yes. it's wild that Sadie, have you have you worn earplugs yet or have your ears not deteriorated? Sadie wears earplugs to sleep. Do you remember? Oh, that's right. But yes. it's wild that you can wear earplugs to movies and concerts and still hear everything perfectly, which is really <laughs> indicative of how fucking loud they are like They're pumping stuff into but rooms. But everybody, Samantha, you know that you can get washable, reusable earplugs too, right? No, I Not just, just have those a ones. jar in my car. What you have see- we established <laughs> about my executive dysfunction on this podcast? No, Jen? that's why mine is is because I the squashy ones um, they swell up too much and hurt my tiny ear holes. So I got based on the recommendation of my former Jen. across the street neighbor who is a drummer. <laughs> I've got uh, these little earplugs that they're like professional for musicians called downbeats and they let through. So when people talk to you, you can hear speaking voices normally, but they cut off all of like the too loud noise of music and stuff so that your ears won't be destroyed. 
and I they're amazing. Also have and you just wash them and then reuse them. And that's why I can't use the regular Apple branded headphone or earplugs oh, or they're ear, the worst. earbuds. They hurt. I'm thinking of. Don't they come with multiple sizes? My AirPods Pro have different fits or whatever. Well, the AirPod Pros, aren't those the ones that like go in ear? I'm talking about the ones that are like yeah. hard. Oh, no, they are hard and they go in your ear. Oh, can't what the do fuck? It. Send me Look a photo after it. this. Okay. I feel like even the small anyway. one. I use like the Dr. Dre Beats or whatever. Like, I do an over the the ear headphone for headphones. But for my earplugs, the downbeats work great. There's also, there's ones called Heroes, which is what I was first recommended, but they're too big. They hurt my ears. But the downbeats are small, Sadie, and that is why they are the Mm. thing. Jen. And with that. (laughs) What disgusting, (laughs) what disgusting foods should people try to serve us in Chinese food containers? Well, 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 if you want to imagine that you're eating maggots with us, you should... Well, actually not do that because I would be kind of grossed out about that. But you should come talk to us on Twitter at YSSTOG. Or you can send us, if you have written a thesis about the Lost Boys and like its place in pop culture or history or the symbolism or anything that's a thesis about the Lost Boys, please absolutely email it to us at YSSTOGpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to hear more scintillating content like this tonight, if you want to help finance our streaming of all these movies or well, also uh, let us know if talk to us it. about it <laughs> oh yeah it's another it, platform <laughs> give us another give us a separate nudge elsewhere where we're more uh yeah. available if if this turns out to be your first time listening to this podcast and you're not a regular i should mention that we are like pretty pathetic at checking our email but we will get to it eventually like we will be so fucking hype in like three months when we discover we have an email you don't even know but anyway you should come uh if if you want to help us stream movies and uh talk to us Further, more in-depth about the Lost Boys, petition to make Samantha start an entire Lost Boys uh, specific like channel or thread or whatever for us to talk about it forever on our Discord. You can find us at YSSTO... Wait, that's not it. It's patreon.com slash YSSTOG is where you can give us some money and join our Discord server. Ahem, ahem, I'm Sadie. We'd like I'm to thank Sharon, Liz, Evan. If I'm going to be mocked and disrespected ahem, and spit upon. I'm Sadie. <laughs> I am not ahem. going to spit upon Sadie. <laughs> I would like to thank our lovely, wonderful patriots who don't make fun of me. Logan, Logan Mayonnaise, Andrew, Althea, Xenalon, Sharon, Justin, Evan, Liz, Brittany, and Ace. We love you all so much. Thank you for sticking beside me while while Samantha degrades me constantly. (laughs) Next week, death becomes her? Is that the plan? What did we decide? I think that is the plan. Because the week yes. after that is Jen's birthday week, and we also have big plans for that. <laughs> <laughs> the vampire festivities are not ending. Dump no, no, no. <laughs> the homoerotic vampire festivities on this podcast have just begun. Mm-hmm.